0: Welcome to the Movie Business Podcast, picking up where movie business book left off. I'm Jason Squire, hosting a wide range of industry talent and executives to answer fundamental questions about the business today. Here we go. The Entertainment Lawyer is our subject with Linda Lichter, founding member and partner at Lichter, Grossman, Nichols, Adler, Feldman & Clark representing talent and content across the entertainment horizon. She is perennially on the Hollywood Reporter's list of 100 Most Powerful Women in Hollywood and other lists of power lawyers. Linda lectures widely and chairs the Board of Governors of the Telluride Film Festival. Welcome, Linda. Hello, Jason. Thank you for being here. It's so kind of you to join us on the podcast. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Let's jump right in and ask, what are the secrets of the entertainment lawyer? Uh,
1: I think maybe that we have no secrets, but uh, the biggest secret, uh, and this is something that I tell my students when I'm, when I'm teaching, is that this particular practice is fun. It's great. You know, you can, as a lawyer, you generally are representing, you know, uh, certainly, uh, you know, if you're in business, you're representing people who are fighting about money. And that's an aspect of what we do as entertainment lawyers, but we get to represent artists, you know, and they're very interesting people to be in business with, to have a relationship with. And it's very exciting to be part of their creative process. And I think that's, that's a secret. I think the other secret is, that being an entertainment lawyer, because of how fast the business moves, requires a, a level of creativity that maybe a business where you're doing forms or you're, you know, you're handling, you know, corporate securities it really doesn't have. You have to really adjust extremely quickly to the changes in the media business, and that's, you know, that's just something that makes the the practice thrilling almost every day, especially the day after the Writers Guild decides that it's going to strike the the studios because the studios are not adjusting their contract as quickly as they should. And so also a part of the work is diplomacy, isn't it? Well, I I mean, I, I think that that's definitely true because you're dealing with sensitive egos. You're dealing with a lot of parties that have their own particular interest. And, you know, you have to be there Mouthpiece, your client's mouthpiece, in a way, without irritating people on the other side or blowing the deal. It does require it it requires adjusting your personality, your temperament, your approach in every conversation you have. Mm -hmm. Each one is different. And
0: if you represent a client and uh, need to understand the client's personality and and it's a creative individual. Uh, that's a little different, I assume, than speaking on the other side with the dealmaker who may be a little bit more straight laced, if you will.
1: Yeah, I think that that's true. and and certainly historically, maybe less true in recent years, the there were certain patterns that each business affairs person has to follow. You know, they had standards. you know you could do this for this type of person, but not for this type of person. and it it could be very rigid. And and sometimes the people on the other side just don't have the flexibility that you might have, let's say, in the independent world to to make certain kinds of deals or adjustments and the kinds of, you know, things that you can offer to talent. So it is difficult, but they have their own politics on the other side. You know, they have to be diplomats and be able to advocate on behalf of the positions that we take as entertainment lawyers to the creative people who may or may not understand what the issues are. Mm -hmm. Well, let's
0: turn to some of the deal-making, some of the recent changes in deal-making, especially with streamers who really do not have the concept of back-end that traditional media has had for so long a period of time. How have these new streamer deals changed the business?
1: Well, if there's no back-end, there has to be a (laughs) front-end. There has to be a front-end. There has to be some adjustment in the deal. And- And, you know, when Netflix first started, they were disrupting the business because they didn't provide a back end, but they paid people a very high fee for their work. And they paid, in addition to that, a premium, a bonus that was payable over a certain period of time that could also be very substantial, basically. a a buyout of whatever back end that party might have expected. And those were in the, in the early days, very generous. So of course, you know, lots of people wanted to do business with them as time has gone on. Two things have happened. One is that they're, they have had their own economic trouble. So they're a little less, uh, liable to throw money around and the other is that there's been competition and the and the and competition has had their own formulas for how they do this back end in the streaming world you know if it's apple it's one way if it's amazon it's another way if it's peacock it's another way if it's Disney plus it's another way and in some cases there are no premiums at all there are no buyouts if you're a writer you're unlikely to get much of any buyout because the analysis is that the back end for a writer usually doesn't pay out. So why, mm-hmm. why give them anything special? So it's been, it's been interesting.
0: And yet the buyout concept assumes every project is successful, and that's just never the case in traditional media.
1: Well, that's true. And that, and that is, that, that's one reason why the, uh, the Writers Guild is complaining about the nature of the residuals that streamers pay, because they don't make a distinction between those shows that do well and those shows that do nothing. But the result of that is if you're a name, you know, that is meaningful in the process, you know, you're the, an important director, auteur director, you're a big star, you're continuing to get very big buyouts, but everybody else is not. Hmm. Because they're, they're, the assumption is that, you know, they're not, they, they wouldn't have it in a, in a traditional context. Hmm.
0: And let's turn now to a uh, hypothetical young talent who is looking for an entertainment lawyer, what steps should be taken?
1: Well, you know, you have to, it's a very small community. So there aren't that many people to choose from relative to, you know, how many, you know, bankruptcy lawyers or PI lawyers there are in the world. So it's important to check the, you know, to get references from people, you know, try to get beyond, let's say your agent and manager, just because, you don't want them necessarily to recommend somebody that they have too close of a relationship with. You want somebody with an independent voice. Um, but sometimes those recommendations can be good. Um, you want to check that person's reputation in the community in whatever ways you can, with, with your, as I said, with your friends or, you know, online. And then, you know, I mean, my feeling is that for young talent, it's good to have two types of people on your team. One would be somebody who would be you know, described as a gray hair, which is what I've got, which is gray hair, um, who has a lot of experience and a perspective and also has good relationships in the business. And the other would be somebody who is your peer, who you know, is roughly your age, maybe with a, a good amount of experience and somebody that you can be with for many, many years because these, these relationships are very stable. You know, unlike agents and managers, lawyers tend to be with clients, you know, for their whole careers unless something terrible happens. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have somebody who you trust, uh, whose judgment you trust, and who you can build a relationship with.
0: So in effect, it's a very small town, and this is a real specialty. The relationships are very close, and people tend to know each other. What happens when there is a new buyer in town, and the new negotiator may not be as familiar with the subtleties of entertainment contracts and building a fair deal between the uh, the buyer and the seller you know, with somebody relatively new uh, what happens then
1: you're talking about a buyer yes a,
0: yes a buyer
1: well, what happens then is that they, they get a quick education, you
0: know? <laughs> Yes,
1: well, that's you know, that they get thrown into the deep end. I mean, people, you know, obviously, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing, you can take advantage, maybe. But on the other hand, sometimes they can not really understand what has been traditionally part of the deal. And they, they can make stupid deals and they can also blow deals because they don't know what's, uh, what's kind of within the range of what's acceptable. Do
0: you find that you're in the situation almost to have to gently teach someone who will listen and will be grateful as opposed to someone who may be resistant?
1: I don't know. It doesn't happen that often. I mean, usually people that that are engaged, either they know what they're doing or they have people who work with them who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say that in, you know, in the beginning stages of the streaming business, Netflix must have hired 200 lawyers and not mm-hmm. all of them were particularly experience and that could be quite frustrating, either because they just said no to everything or because they just didn't understand.
0: Yeah, that's the kind of thing I was thinking of. Exactly right. So right. let me ask a related question involving negotiation. That has to do with precedents. Are precedents mm-hmm. still valid where you can say, well, the talent did this in the last project, and here is the precedent, and that helps the conversation?
1: Well, there is a law, a new law, as of a couple of years ago in California and in New York, huh where you weren't allowed to ask what the person's precedent was. And the purpose of that, of course, was to try to not hold people down to the prices that were paid for people who were you know, previously not paid what other people were paid. You know, for for, for uh, women and minorities in particular, and it, it didn't quite work in the entertainment business. Although it's still the law, because what happens is then they just they do one of two things: either they make a really low offer, and then you have to justify in some way a higher offer by getting your client to agree that you can reveal their precedent, or they say. You know, we don't care about precedent. We're just going to pay you whatever we want to pay you. And you don't have any, you know, we we think this is what you're worth and we don't care about precedent. So it's become an interesting uh, cat and mouse game to some degree. There also was a point where, you know, if you had a contract that said you got a million dollars, you could say to somebody, I have a contract that says I have a million dollars. And now what they'll say to you is, yeah, you have a contract, but that movie didn't get made right. So you, you never got paid that million dollars. So therefore that, that quote is meaningless. So it, it, there's, a, there's an aspect of that as well.
0: Let me turn to one more uh, hypothetical. And that is, what do you do if you're dealing with someone who is quite rigid? Have you encountered uh, someone on the other side who is simply sticks the heels in and will not budge? And if so, what happens?
1: You know, it doesn't happen that much. Uh, as a result of inexperience, it probably happens more because you've pushed them beyond where they wanted to go. What happens? Maybe the deal blows. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe your client is willing to accept less than what would be normal. It more happens in the context of, say, dealing with people outside of the business whose uh, book, let's say, or whose life rights are being acquired where they really just don't even know what's normal. So they can be unreasonable in what they ask for. And you have to kind of them in as to what would be acceptable, not just for your client, but if you want to sell it to anybody else in the business, what other people would be willing to accept. But you know generally, if you're dealing with a business affairs person, they, they get it pretty fast and their creative people will say, well, we don't want to lose that deal. You have to be more flexible.
0: Very good. And finally, what's your prediction for uh, deal making and, and the business in general going forward?
1: You mean I'm not going to be replaced by a robot?
0: That's exactly what I was thinking, yes.
1: <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. I certainly hope not.
0: It's pretty scary, isn't it, uh, these uh, experiments? Yeah, I'm,
1: I don't think I'm going to be around for that to happen. Um, I'm more worried about robots deciding that the way to defeat climate change is to eliminate people from the Earth.
0: Yeah, good one. Um, wow. <laughs>
1: I'm more worried about that than about them replacing yes. me. They can replace me if they want. Let's see him do it.
0: <laughs> but where are things going in the business? Uh, there have been so many changes in the last five to 10 years. What do you think we have in store?
1: Uh, you know, every five, in, every five to 10 years, there's massive changes. You know, I, when I started out and I'm revealing my age here, we were, you know, we were doing contracts with carbon paper. You know, and then they had fax machines and then they had messengers. And now then, you know, we we didn't we didn't have cell phones. I mean, every every couple of years, there's something new. And as I said, that's part of the fun of this job is that you're on a roller coaster. You're kind of having to ride the roller coaster. I think it's going to I think that the business has become much more corporate I, I think that there's a consensus that it's less fun as a result, it's less personal as a result, and I think that trend is going to continue. I don't see it, it diminishing. I think that there's going to be a consolidation amongst the the, the studios and the entertainment pro, you know producers, where you have much fewer, many fewer people to deal with, many fewer companies to deal with, and that I don't think is great for the business. But maybe something will happen and. You know, you'll have a whole new crop of of companies. That's what I'm hoping, or whole new approaches. Maybe we can get distribution by robots. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think it's very hard to envision it. That you know, it, because you know, everything that's happened over the last you know 30, 40 years, no one could have imagined. So I think other than maybe, uh, I don't know. There's no one who can imagine what the future is going to be. If they if they if they could, they'd be very rich. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, you know, I just want to emphasize how important fun is in what you're doing because, gosh, this has been lots of fun to be able to chat with you. Thank you, Linda Lichter, for being a guest on the Movie Business Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.